Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now I think you'd agree one thing we all need to do is learn the lessons from history. So I'm very pleased that my guest today has written a book about exactly that. Alex Dean, who is a consultant and a lawyer and whom you might know from his appearances on Sky News, GB News and Times Radio, has just produced this book, Lessons from History, Hidden Heroes and Villains from the Past, and what we can learn from them. Um, thanks for joining me, Alex. Very Thank much. you very much. Thanks for having me. This has just come out, hasn't it? Yep, just out this week. Yeah. And so tell me, as I understand it, this started off as something else, didn't it, on online? Oh, yeah. It's very much a thing of the 21st century, this. I started telling these stories on Twitter during lockdown. I was um, uh, searching for things to do as people were. Um, my father wasn't very well, so I was staying back with my, my parents. Um, and at a loose end, surrounded by his works of history, absent an audience to inflict things on in person, I started telling these stories on Twitter. And I had no expectation or idea it would go anywhere. It was a, a bit of a, a lark. Uh, and important caveat, I'm not an historian. You know, I was of that most English of things, an enthusiastic amateur. Mm -hmm. So, you know, no background in it, not even history degree. Yeah. Um, just history is something I love. Started telling these anecdotes on, online and very quickly and very flatteringly, they started getting, for me anyway, huge numbers of hits and, uh, and views and retweets and comments. And so very quickly, they got past a million views for the stories. And uh, yeah, now well north of that. But um, it was that that encouraged people to say, uh, people were saying, why don't you put these into a book? Yeah. The other thing that was interesting was people started suggesting the stories. So sort of the first, that bit's me. And yeah. the rest of that is sort of crowdsourced. Oh. Uh, it's people coming up with um, yes. their own stories that they wanted to hear. And um, I tell them firmly with my tongue in my cheek. So I hope yeah. that was part of why they wanted me to tell their story. But a lot of it is absolutely crowdsourced. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, there's this nearly 100 chapters. That's slightly misleading because, in fact, they're very short, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, they're very, they tell particular stories. I, when I was reading it, I was thinking that the one thing that seems to uh, unite them all is... Perhaps you tell me if I'm wrong, but it's a kind of, it's the human spirit, the resilience of the human spirit. Do you think that's... I think that's very kind of you uh, to try and find a thread that goes all the way through it. Right. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost, but if there is a design, by design, it's eclectic and it's eccentric and it's tales from all parts of history. Uh, but yes, uh, resilience is certainly something I was aiming for, from the story of the Soviet doctor who removes his own appendix, um, which is one I um, rather enjoy, to... Adrian Carton of Art, who, you know, bites off his own fingers uh, because the surgeon refused to amputate them and says, well, on, on the whole, I rather enjoyed the war. Uh, <laughs> there is a certain resilience there. Yeah. But there's also, I think, and hope some political resilience, too. And that's something worth bearing in mind at a time when, to think about the forum I started the books on, yeah. there's a certain share of voice which is very loud and very yeah, angry yeah, and constantly yeah. criticises Sometimes you've got to keep going. Yeah, if yeah. there are volumes two, three, four of Lessons from History, if someone else does it in years to come, I'm sure they'll tell anecdotes about the resilience of people who, for example, yes. saw through Brexit yeah. or stayed the course with conservative views and values, even though they were getting brickbats from, it seemed, the world yes. um, because of the left-wing dominance of the social media sphere. 
So um, resilience is a thoughtful way of thinking about it. You've put more thought into it than I have, but yes, no. I accept it. <laughs> no, no, you're way too modest. I, I, I thought I think it's great. This was, I mean, I want to ask you a, a few of your particular favourite right. ones that strike you, but, but basically uh, one that I particularly uh, liked is actually he's not an unsung hero, but it's about Ronald Reagan and the air traffic controllers. I mean, and, and what's the lesson we draw? Can you just explain what happened and what's the lesson we draw sure. from that? Um, well, Reagan uh, was confronted with a strike by a union. I've got the one here, the story here. But Reagan was confronted with a, a strike from a union of the professional air traffic controllers who'd been militating about pay. And um, I think they thought they had a stronger hand than they did. Yeah. They threatened to withhold their labour, um, which is their right. And uh, Reagan said, very well then, you are dismissed. Rather than giving in and rather than um, trying to find ways around um, their position, this has echoes, of course, with our train drivers. You remember yes. Aslev held yeah. Britain hostage uh, for a while. Um, PATCO, the, the, the uh, union, lost. They lost in court. They were ordered to return to work. Over 11,000 of them refused. And that was the point at which Reagan uh, fired them. And so he followed... Just en masse. If, yeah, he followed due process. They had their day in court. They lost. They still refused to go back. And so he dismissed them. The other thing that I was thinking about, not to make it too political, but the other thing I was thinking about as I was telling this story, hinted at at the, the end of it, and as you say, they're only short Twitter threads, was um, what we're going to do with people who refuse to get vaccinated in the UK. Right. Because the point is, Ronald Reagan had a plan B. His plan B was bring in the military, bring in staff and make the staff who were bureaucrats man the air traffic control, hoping it's safe, of course, man the air traffic control systems. If you're going to get rid of people, if you're going to move people on because they won't do what you want them to do, you have to have a plan B. Because somebody may yeah. call your bluff. Yeah. That's the lesson from that one for me. What, what about this vaccination thing, Alice? I mean, what, what do you, what's your view on it? Well, it, the debate has now become, in my view, far worse yeah. because of what we're talking about with children. Mm. Um, I can just about see, although I think it's vast state overreach per se, to say that something should be compulsory, some medical treatment should be compulsory. I'm deeply uncomfortable with that per se. But when you start saying as young as 12, or even younger as the debate is now moving, you're getting into a much worse discussion. We're away from the book now, but the point is that, you know, the, the point isn't whether, and these are theoretical children, I don't have any. The point isn't whether I want my children to be vaccinated. That's not the issue. It's not even if I want your children to be vaccinated. It's if I think the state shouldn't be able to vaccinate my children without my consent, why should that principle change when it comes to your children? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a great deal of people saying, well, I think that my children should get vaccinated, therefore so should yours. Mm. And any right you might have to um, refuse medical treatment to, for your children is overridden because of my views. Mm. That, if mm. they stop and think for a moment, mm. that can't be right, can it? Mm, no, it can't. I think um, one of the things that has struck me throughout this whole pandemic thing is, and it is related to this, is that we have become maybe over a period of decades risk averse i mean it's all about utter safety now People sure that, you know safety trumps everything freedom of speech freedom to do this that, the other. and one thing that about your book that struck me was that the incredible unfettered freedom with which some people did actually behave and yes it, some of the some of the actual deeds they did i mean there was one, I think his name is the Baron de Longchamp. It's, it's, ah, yes. And it's in, Towards the it's end. I think it's chapter 89. Oh, good. Chapter 89. Um, I'd love to be able to write that one day. And, uh, but he was extraordinary. He wanted to get revenge for the death of his father, didn't he? I yeah. mean, it was quite, a, can you just explain to us what, what happened? I mean, his, um, 
he was a grandnephew of the king as well, uh, of King Leopold of Belgium. Right. So he had a pretty bad war, obviously, if you yeah. look at uh, what happened. But he had a very good war. He was in the Belgian cavalry when the Second World War broke out, and they saw some real fighting, um, which, of course, inevitably failed, we now, we now know, given the Franco-German armistice. But then he um, came to the UK via Morocco, determined to fight, mm-hmm. joined um, uh, the RAF, in which he served bravely. But he wanted to avenge the death of his father, who'd been killed by the Germans in his hometown of Brussels. And he requested, and quite understandably was denied permission, to go on a solo mission to beat up the, um, the, the Gestapo HQ. So on a, a particular day, following his orders to a certain point, doing a, an attack run, he then veered away from uh, the rest of his <laughs> colleagues and went solo to Brussels and um, flew down the avenue um, Avenue Louise, which is famous, and of course you will see it as you, if you come out of the Eurostar in Brussels. So he's actually for, so th- down the middle very of the, skilled down the middle of the streets in yeah. Brussels, which, is, by the way, is a perfectly nice town, which has done nothing to deserve what's been inflicted on it. Um, down the street and machine gunned Gestapo HQ. I mean, talk about precision. <laughs> building to the left untouched, building to the right untouched, really? building the middle absolutely marmalised. Uh, and then pulls up and away, kills a bunch of Nazis, pulls yeah. up and away, and then the pièce de résistance opens his cockpit and litters uh, the ground with tiny British and Belgian flags, just to make, <laughs> just to make sure you know who'd done this. And, and so the word, I mean, the deed itself is fantastic, yeah. but the, the broader message to the Belgians to keep going and to keep their heads up, people tried, the, 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 the Germans tried to keep people away from the street that day so as not to see what had happened, but crowds came in droves to see what this man had done. Now, he was reprimanded by the RAF, but I dare say his commanders had a glint of positivity in their eye as they did yeah. it. It reminded me a bit of the story about Cap- uh, Colonel Blood or Captain Blood and the, and the Crown Jewels, where basically he did something that was on the face of it, you know, it was bad. But in fact, the king was so impressed by his daring do that I think he ennobled him or, or something. But, but I thought about that particular story, and in fact, many others in the book, they, these, these are movie scripts waiting to happen. Yes, so there's only one that I know has been turned into a film, oh, right. and uh, it's the story of the Calcutta Light Horse, um, which uh, which is a bunch of I mean, now they'd be called gammons by our uh, by our friends in uh, on the left. Gammons, I know I'm 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 definitely a gammon now. Um, <laughs> you're of course too too svelte and handsome, but I'm definitely a gammon, sweating <laughs> under these lights. Um, but um, the Calcutta Light Horse were a bunch of old duffers. They were a bunch of yeah. chaps in their fifties and sixties at best. Um, who had been put on reserve, their unit had been on reserve since the Boer War. It was, just, it was a polo club. And um, special operations executive um, uh, were trying hard to, to prevent U-boat sinking of our shipping. And um, they realised quite quickly that the Germans who were communicating via a boat which had been interned in Goa, mm. neutral under the Portuguese, old, world's oldest continuous alliance, Britain and Portugal. We certainly didn't want to violate Portuguese neutrality, not least because we needed to keep them on side. They were using the, the Americans were quietly using the Azores on nod and a wink. The Portuguese were cooperating with us in lots of different uh, ways, quite quietly. We didn't invoke the alliance so they could maintain their neutrality, mm-hmm. and we certainly didn't want to breach it. Mm-hmm. So we needed what we now call plausible deniability. Right. And SOE went in this sort of boy's own heady adventure, said to these old duffers on the wrong side of India, will you come along and help us out? Mm come along on a boat, sail a barge around India, plainly unsuited for it. We'll put one of your chaps on the street in advance who'll pay all the brothels in the area to give a free night out for sailors on the basis that he's an old sailor and wants to show them a good time, hopefully getting some of the crew off. Sail your barge up to the German ship, get the code books, kill the Germans, sink the ship. If confronted, 
um, throw your guns over the side and say that you're a businessman out on a frolic of your own. We all, a premise, by, oh, by the way, that they supported by pouring whiskey all over themselves before going on this mission. But every aspect of that plan is preposterous. Yeah. And it worked completely. Every single aspect of it. And then my, my favourite part is, they go back, to, having done this, not one casualty. They go all the way back to, um, so they, not only do they sink the German ships, an Italian ship scuttles for good measure, just joins in. Uh, they, they go back to Calcutta and their commanders say, by the way, chaps, uh, not a word of this, please. Portuguese wouldn't like it, you see. And they go to their graves, every single man of them, without saying a word about this remarkable act yeah. of heroism, yeah. which saved hundreds of lives and thousands of tons of shipping, uh, shipping tonnage, which were desperately needed for us during the war. Yeah. So um, I, I like that story. But that's been turned into a film with Roger Moore and Gregory Peck and David Niven. It didn't do that well. And it what was it called? Do you remember what it was? The Sea Wolves is oh, the name of the film. Seawolves. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it sort of... It injects an unnecessary love interest and so forth. Yeah. That's typical um, yeah. Hollywood type approach. But it's not a bad movie, but the real thing is much better. You know, I think as well, and this is not meant in any way uh, to diminish it, this is a great one for if you want to read history to kids, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you know, that's, it, it, it that's really true. But I hope. <laughs> no, um, I was going to say, I was gonna say you, you obviously are interest in history, was this something you were, as a child, you were interested in? Yeah, I always loved it, and typical boy, at least of my age, military history was a particular interest. I mean, lots of these stories are about the military, but that was one of my driving interests. And the thing about it, these stories that for me has been so pleasing, is that a large part of the audience has said, if I was taught history like this at school, I'd have mm -hmm. been interested mm -hmm. instead of not. If my kids were taught history like this, they wouldn't hate it. They'd really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there is a part of, of that without, I hope, being too preachy. And the other thing about it being good for kids is they're short. They're yeah, the length yeah. of Twitter anecdotes, a page or two, yeah. quick story of heroism, daring do, um, and then on to the next one. Or if you're on the loo, you know, pop it back on the shelf for the next visit. Yes. Um, on that point, you know, th this is actually, I, I wonder whether, in fact, these sort of books, the book you've written, and there are others as well coming out, all about history, because history is suddenly at the very, very forefront, the subject of history, I mean, yeah. is very, very much at the forefront of what we might call the culture war. Um, when it comes to teaching history in school, I mean, uh, you know, I've got nieces and nephews, and, and I know what they're sort of taught. It's pretty inadequate, isn't it? Um, so I, first of all, of course, my, I'm the son of teachers. I greatly respect the teaching profession. And someone who's devoted their lives to teaching history, I, I, I respect not least because they're a professional at it and I'm an amateur. Mm. That said, it does seem to me that we could do with a bit more... I, I, think, tell, I think people get interested in history by telling stories mm. I, and by hearing stories and listening to them. And not only does it seem, from what I gather, our history curriculum is a great deal of World War II and the Tudors, and that's about it. Yeah. Um, the other thing it's about increasingly for some people at least, is saying how racist and bigoted Britain is. You know, where everyone in our past is on some, some point of the spectrum of bigot, and it's just working out quite how bigoted they are or were. And um, I think that probably turns people off learning from history, and it probably puts people who have a natural passion about stories and a passion about their country and uh, an enthusiasm for those things, it probably makes them think this isn't for me, when I think it unambiguously is. You know, I mean, I, I live in South London, and uh, as a kid, we used to drive past Deptford, I think it's Deptford Town Hall, you know, on the way into London, and they've got these statues of these great British heroes, you know, yeah. like uh, Nelson and For the Drake. moment. Yeah. For the moment. <laughs> they've got them. 
it was in the paper yesterday, Goldsmiths uh, College, which is nearby, is going to have some kind of public consultation as to whether they should be removed. Now, I don't know about you, I get yeah. viscerally so angry at that kind of news. These yeah. are heroes. Great story, you know, sure. Francis Drake with the bowls and, and Nelson and, you know, it gives me hard. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just appalling, isn't it? It is appalling. And it, it, there's only ever a ratchet effect on these things because no one's going to put up a new statue of these people, right? It's yeah. only defending and preserving what yeah, we've yeah, got. Yeah. And I think we probably are in a culture war. It's not between the left and the right. It's between destroyers and preservers. Yeah. And um, lest people think to themselves, what do I care? I never really noticed the statue in the first place. I would say what starts with statues is not going to end with statues. If you give way on this stuff, they'll come for books next. They'll come for old... Ra I mean, we already see it with t the archives of TV comedy and people getting non-personed because they held views that are now regarded as unacceptable. And, and it's a great shame to me, not least because I do believe that we should um, encourage people to think of certain examples from history as heroes, as people to look up to, literally on a pedestal. But it also depresses me um, because I think that this attitude that we're in some sort of glorious year zero in which everyone before us is some kind of moron and we're just trying to work out what, how moronic they were, it is facile and, uh, and not least because there are going to be generations that come after this supposedly uniquely enlightened generation we are who are going to regard us as some shade of moron as well. So if you encourage that sort of thinking, it's reductive and will destroy ourselves. In the end, this position will eat itself. No one will meet the standards of current, um, what do we call it, woke identity. No one will meet the standards of acceptability. Because accept all our demands today, we'll have some new ones tomorrow. Yes. And that means we've just got to resist it pretty much in every instance and wherever it comes up. What about this thing that's happened whereby... Uh, we have now something called retain and explain, which is where they put a plaque yeah. on. So, for example, down in on Plymouth Hoe, there's a statue of Francis Drake, which is now going to have sort of a he brutally, you know, suppressed it. You know, yeah. And, along with the wonderful things he did. I mean, to me, that's the, the worst of both worlds. No, it's not for me. The worst of both worlds is the arbitrary destruction of things. The worst of both, of both worlds for me is people going, having run a campaign in Bristol to take a statue down and having lost it. They just go and tear it down anyway, yeah. and then people ignore the rule of law. That's the worst thing. The thing about retain and explain is I can at least hope, maybe a lost hope, maybe forlorn, but I can at least hope that somebody in future times will think better and get rid of that retain and explain, or at least provide a different one that has a bit more context and is less sort of history bashing or, you know, seeking virtue signalling and um, has less of the offence archaeology that we're seeing going on at the moment. A future generation might say to itself, all right, yeah, granddad thought that this woke stuff was relevant, but I don't really. But at least they'll still have the statue. If we allow yeah. these people to get rid of things, then, then you won't. I'm not completely against the retain and explain position. Not me. Think about the Great Fire of London. And uh, we have there um, where it started on Pudding Lane, uh, an enormous monument to the Fire of London, which calls out the Catholics. And then there's a, um, a retain and explain of 100 years ago that says, well, not really. Uh, this was of its time. Mm -hmm. And at least they didn't destroy that, or at least they didn't t pull down the monument to the Great Fire. Um, so, you know, it's not a new thing either. No, no, that's an interesting point about the monument. But I suppose my feeling really about that is that I look at the people who are critical of statues and they're happy with retain and explain. 
And therefore, I, it must be wrong. And therefore, I think, <laughs> wait a minute, yeah. you feel this is a big... Do you, do you think generally uh, the government has been rigorous enough on these questions, do you think? The trouble is there's a lot going on, right? And mm. when you govern, you've got an agenda of umpteen things. And at any one time, think of the government as we sit, coronavirus raging, the Afghan fallout, not completely unrelated to that, a migration problem that is um, increasingly harming its support in its base. Um, Debates about statues are going to be second order to that. And the thing about um, this sort of woke agenda of destruction is that its acolytes are absolutely fervent. It's a bit culty. They care about that and nothing else. Mm. The closest equivalent I can get to thinking about it in modern discourse is people who are obsessive about cycling. You know, they become, which is a perfectly good form of transport that's done nothing to deserve the weirdos who now obsess about it and insist that anyone who doesn't love cycling is some kind of maniac. Um, in the same way, the people who care about this statue agenda care about it to the exclusion of almost everything else. And if you've got people who are obsessive like that, you tend to find that a small, concentrated minority will prevail over a large, diffuse majority that cares less. That happens pretty much all the time. So it's no wonder the government's agenda isn't focused on it. What it needs is a fifth column of, of young fogies and old fogies who care enough about it, as happened in your example at Plymouth Hoe, mm. where people went round and surrounded the statue of Drake and said, you're not taking this down. Mm. And so mm. people thought twice about it. Yeah. And that's why they went retain and explain in the end. They'd have preferred to pull that down, you know, but oh, they yes. lost. I think uh, whenever they do public consultations on any of these things... Uh, you're nine-tenths to losing already, yeah. once it starts. Yeah. Um, not to say that there's anything political about this, by the way. Sure. Uh, it seems pretty straightforward. Uh, I don't it? think, I, I mean, I, I tell a couple of stories about Margaret Thatcher that some people might not like very much. But on the other hand, I... Tell us one. Well, I mean, <laughs> this is, so the, the only story that is from my, my, my own life, except for um, having a go at Geoffrey Howe, uh, which is also in here. Um, my, the only story I tell from my own life is that I took a friend to an event uh, that Margaret Thatcher was speaking at. And she has this remarkable persona that I've only ever seen, both women, interestingly, I've only ever seen with the Queen, um, where someone comes into a room and a room feels like a pinball table that's suddenly on tilt and mm. all of the energy, all of the balls is rolled to one corner. Thatcher came into the room and a, a Brits love queuing and a, um, an impromptu welcoming line um, was constructed and greeting line and um, it was my friend's turn and um, he was a big Thatcher fan, erudite guy, partner at a law firm, completely lost for words. And she held his hand for, I promise you, a minute, which does not sound like long, but if you're in public, like it is forever. Yeah. And he finally said, you saved our country. Oh. And she kept just holding his hand. She looked him in the eye and she said in her low voice, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's so I'm sure that some people work like that. But I also tell a couple of LBJ stories and, you know, because like, these, these titans from history, these big figures, yeah. um, had a lot to them. And uh, it's, I, I don't think it's inherently political to tell stories like that. No. I, uh, we can't really top that one, actually, I think. Um, all the very best for the book. Thank you very uh, much. Yeah. Lessons from History. It's available, obviously, on. Amazon, but also in bookshops, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So uh, in all good bookshops, as they used to say. Um, thanks very much indeed. Thank for you. Um, and um, all the best for it. Uh, that's it for this week. We shall see you next week. So thank you very much.